the elders, old and new, messing up things. We're gonna submit to them though. We're gonna submit to them. All right, so Job 38. This is really the point in the book that everybody's been waiting for. Job, his friends, and people that read the book. I mean, it's a long and winding road, and when we finally get here, finally God shows up. But um, it may not be exactly what you think it is when God starts speaking. So Job 38 is the second time, really, that we hear from God. God speaks initially in the first two chapters, and then there's a deafening silence for 30-plus chapters. Everybody talks about God, but God doesn't say anything for himself. And then we read these words. Start with me. I'm going to read verse 1, really, down through verse 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel and utters words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. Some translations have, which is probably better than the ESV here. Make it known to me. Answer me or something like that. Your translation have that? Make it known to me or answer me. Okay, so let's start. Before we get into God's speeches, there are two different responses. So in 20, 25 minutes, we're going to deal with the first one. And then Lord willing, next week, we'll deal with the second one. But the first one goes from chapter 38 all the way to chapter 40 and verse 5. And then the second speech, it deals with something a little bit different and gets a different reaction out of Job. So let's appreciate that. There are three important things to remember before we read God's response, okay? Because you might have your mind made up about what God's doing in the, with these questions, but you've got to keep in mind three things. If you're going to read what God says faithfully, number one, help me out. How does God view Job? Number one. Righteous, what else? Blameless, Blameless upright, God-like Job? Yes, God pleased with Job? Couldn't be happier. That's number one. When you read this response, remember what God thinks about Job and what he's already said about him. Here's number two. What have Job and the friends been saying about God? Especially Job. Because you might think as you read these responses, well, God's just shooting off, giving Job this crazy final exam that he's certainly won't. With all these questions about creation, he has no idea about. I'm going to try to weave some of this in. I've got like 20 minutes. If y'all give me five more, we can have 25. But I want to try to show you where God says something, and he's quoting directly what Job said about him. He said, checkmate, Job, you were wrong. So the first thing is, remember what God thinks about Job. Secondly, remember what the friends have been saying about Job. Which is what, by the way? What have the friends and Job been saying about God? Especially Job. What, what has he been saying? What have you done? That was his question, what have you done? But what has he been saying about God? Like, Job says some things about God. What has he said about him? Says he trusts in him. Something about trust, but in his accusations he said things like, God's just letting the world do whatever it wants. God's attacking me. God wants to kill me. God's creation. Wicked people get away with everything. God sleep on the job. Job chapter 9. I'll show you the references as we march through. Here's the third thing, which y'all already told me. What's Job's major question? What? Why? Yes. So when it when we get to Leviathan and Behemoth, whatever that is, he's got to answer this question for Job. Like, what is what does Job want to know? Those are the three things. What does God think about Job? Remember that. Number two. What have they been saying about God? And then number three, what does Job really want to know? Because God in his own way is going to answer that. So there are various views about the way that God responds to Job. Some people are mad. God doesn't really come right out and tell Job, hey, there was a conversation once upon a time in chapter one and chapter two. And some people have said, you know, God uses a cop out on Job. He pretty much just gives Job this fire hydrant treatment of information. Job can't answer everything. And God never answers any questions. Um, some people say that, um, God's chastising Job. 
and basically saying, how dare you question me? You don't know a fraction of what I do, and you're not in a position to ask me anything. Know your place, Joe. Some people read it that way. Maybe you do. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And all of that. Hold that off for a second. I've read the questions like that for a long time. I don't think that's altogether wrong, but I think there's just a little bit more going on. And then um, there seems to be a sense in this first speech that God does do some of that. But that view that we just described, that God's saying, Job, you're not smarter than me. Where were you? You don't know anything. It doesn't take into account how pleased God is with Job. The third view, which I think is probably the right one, it sees God's questions as vindicating Job and coming alongside to ultimately comfort Job. And I know we can't read tone into text, but I think we'll see it as we go through. All right, number one, Job 38 and verse one, God answers Job from a whirlwind. This word, Sarai, it's like a whirlwind or a tornado. It appears several times in the Old Testament. The technical term for this is called a theophany. You don't have to know that to go to heaven, but you've got to know it to pass the final exam in this class. So, you don't. You know about theophanies, though, where God doesn't really show up. People can't see God. You remember God told Moses, no man can see me and live, Exodus 33, 20. So what ways does God show up throughout the Bible? Give me some of these ways where God shows up, but you don't really see God, but God kind of gives you a representation of who he is, and then he talks and communicates with people. Yell some out at me. What are some other theophanies in Scripture? Burning bush. Burn, I knew y'all would go burning bush. <laughs> Exodus 3, burning bush, right? That's like in the Probably movie. That's all the same. You've got to know that. Pillar of fire and cloud. Pillar of fire and cloud. Power. Exodus chapter 13. Power. As, as in a tornado went over Tornado, yeah, but I thought First Kings nineteen twelve. He wasn't in the whirlwind. He wasn't in the earthquake, but a still small what with Elijah? Still small voice. What about um, in dreams to people in the Old Testament? He appears various times. Joshua chapter five has this occasion where there's some mysterious character known as the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua five thirteen through fifteen. Who is that? But I believe it's Jesus pre-incarnate. Um, there's the angel of the Lord. There's the fourth man in the fire. You remember that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of these are what we call theophanies. You can't see God physically, but it's how God manifests himself to people. What you have in Job 38.1 is a theophany, but it's a theophany 2.0. It's on another level for this reason. These theophanies all have one thing in common, and that is they normally show up when they're for God's people. Think about all the ones you just talked about. Vernon Bush, Elijah, still small voice pillar of cloud and fire every time God does that with his own folks. Now he does some to enemies, but whenever he does it with his own people, it's always to comfort them and say, I'm with you. Now, if you're going to say these questions in Job are meant to rebuke Job, slap Job around, put Job in his place, this would be the first theophany where God isn't coming to comfort somebody. And who needs more comfort than Job? All right. So this theophany is different because this word storm often has God showing up to do battle. I'm going to give you these references, Exodus 19, 16 through 20, Jeremiah 29, 6, Nathan 1 and verse 3. When it says God comes from the whirlwind in Job 38, 1, picture God. The ancient Near Eastern people would have done this. They would have seen God showing up to fight, to battle. The question we have is for Job or against him. But God answers in a whirlwind. It's no accident that after God describes himself, this idea in the ancient Near Eastern culture of God controlling the waters and getting things under control it's an idea for them that meant God was in total control of everything. God ran the world. No wonder after he describes himself as subduing the Leviathan in Job 41, Job says, okay, now I repent in dust and ashes. God shows up in this warlike character in the Old Testament to cleanse creation and make things right with the world. And that's what he's going to do with Job. Interestingly enough, what did Job think would happen when God did show up? Remember in the speeches he was saying, God, I want to talk to you, but what's going to happen? 
Well, if you read Job 9, 13 through 20, Job says, God, you'll come in a storm and destroy me. God comes in a storm to comfort me. Job says, when you come, I want to talk to you, but I know how you are. You're going to come in this great storm in this tempest. He uses the same word, Sarai. You're going to come in this storm, and you're going to destroy me. God shows up in the storm, and he does anything but destroy Job. That's Job 9, 17. In fact, God's questions of Job are actually not overly complex. You can answer every question God asks Job. Yes, you can. And Job could, too. Everything that God asked Job, what's the answer? Let's start. Where were you when I made the foundation of the word? What's the answer to that? I wasn't there. Who did all of these things? Who did it? Who? Everybody. God. Everybody knows that. Job, God didn't ask Job anything complex. This really isn't a final exam. What God is doing to Job in these questions is inviting Job to what he already knows and is recently forgotten due to his trials and difficulties. Every question God poses to Job, Job knows the answer just like you. The answer is, you, God, not me. I don't know, God. I wasn't there. You alone, God. Every one of them. God shows up in battle, Job 38 and verse 1, out of the whirlwind, but not to destroy his servant, but to gently correct him and to comfort him. Now let's move forward. Verses 2 and 3. There is the question and the challenge. Who is this that darkens counsel and utters words without knowledge? What does that mean, to darken counsel and utter words without knowledge? <clears throat> they talking about things he doesn't know about. Yeah, but Job's talked about two things, Andy, so let's go down that trail. The first thing Job has talked about in his speeches to his friends has been his integrity and his innocence. Was Job right about that or wrong? Job has been right, correct? The second thing, though, that Job focused his speeches on was God's mistreatment of him. Was he right about that or wrong? Wrong. He was right about his treatment and his innocence and integrity. But he was wrong about God. So when God says, who is this that darkens counsel and utters words without knowledge, the entirety of his speeches will focus on that. He actually shows up, and by not mentioning any of Job's sins, step number one is he vindicates Job. There's no sins here about Job. So Job can kind of look at the friends and say, told you. But then God's got to deal with him about the other stuff. The first thing Job talked about was right. You didn't sin. I've gotten, he doesn't mention anything about Job's character that's wrong. He spoke with knowledge about that. But on this other side about God and the kind of God he is and the things he does. Job was out of place. It's important to see how God's response justifies Job. He did speak some things he didn't know. He spoke without knowledge in Job 9, 22 to 24 when he says God doesn't control his world. He does the same thing in Job 10, 8 through 14 and Job 12, 13 through 25. All right, so two things from this first introduction. God deals gently with Job. You notice he doesn't say, Job, who is this that's dumb and that doesn't know anything? He says, who is this that darkens counsel and utters what? Words without? What does that mean? That's saying, you really didn't know Job. I mean, he's dealing with Job gently. I know we kind of want to come to this and see God is bringing out the bell or the lashing whip, but God just, Job, you didn't really know what you were saying about me. You uttered words without knowledge. You didn't know. And God's speech is going to help Job to get his knowledge realigned. He says, Job, basically, look at my creation. Be honest. Does it run like a place that's totally out of control? Do I strike you as the kind of God that doesn't care and just lets things go free? Go free? Did you really know Job? That's the questions that he's asking Job. Do you, does it really look like what you said? Job, you were saying stuff you just really didn't know about. Now, he challenges Job in verse 3. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Um, what's ironic about this, go back to chapter 31. And notice verse 35. Sorry, I'm talking a little bit fast. Some of y'all probably think this is normal hiring feet, but we really got to go. So. This is the last thing that Job said to God. Chapter 31 and verse 35. Oh, that I have one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty do what? 
Answer me. Same phrase in Hebrew. God used the same thing about Job. And here, he's like, no, I'm going to do the talking. Job 38 and verse 3, you answer me. When he says this at the end of Job 38, 3, I will question you. You make it known to me. God called Job out. He says, hey, Job, you want me to answer you? I've got some questions for you. How about you answer me? A lot of people think that when they see God, they're going to talk to him and ask a lot of questions. I can't wait to see God because I'm going to ask him. We won't sit him in the interrogation seat. I can't wait to see God so I can... Job thought that. Job thought he had a lot that he wanted to talk to God about. But when God showed up, of course, he was immediately tongue-tied. All right, so Job said he wanted this in Job 13, 22. He said he wanted to meet God, but when all is said and done, he won't want this anymore. Why does God respond to Job with questions? When we ask someone questions instead of blitzing them with information, what are we trying to do? Why does God... Why didn't God give him information? Why does he instead invite Job into beauty with questions? Why do we do that? When you're talking to somebody about something, instead of laying facts on them, why do we use questions? Make them think. Make them, Tommy? Make them think. Make them think. Make them think. God wants to make Job think. He doesn't want to crush Job. He wants Job to think rightly about me. And I believe that that's what's going on. Instead of telling him about chapter 1 and chapter 2, God does something better. Listen, if God just told Job about chapter 1 and 2, just think about how this would ruin Job. If God said, hey, Job, there was a one time something happened with the devil and I offered you up, that would help Job in this one instance. But what if he just reoriented Job's whole view of him? That would help Job the rest of his life, whatever he faced. If God only told him about chapters 1 and 2, that would solve Job's right now problem. But Job's going to live a long time after this. And he really needs to know how to reckon with God in suffering, regardless of if it's a special type of suffering and circumstance or just the normal suffering that everybody faces. Rather than give God Job's special treatment about this trial, God says, Job, you need something deeper than chapter 1 and 2. You just really need to reorient your view about me. And so let's go on and guide it toward together. Verses Three, really, four through seven, he starts out with the questions. Four through 38. Um, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. How do you read that, surely you know? You can read that sarcastically. Job, you know it all. Or it could be, Job, you know, don't you? See, it depends how you see God. Remember the three things you got to remember. How does God view Job? He loves him, right? What was Job saying about God? God, you let people do whatever they want. And what does Job want to know? Why? He says, surely you know, in verse 5, or who stretched the line upon it on what are his basis sunk? Here's the question. Why does God ask Job about the foundation of the world? To remind him that he wasn't there. To remind him that he wasn't there? Yes. And Job has said some things about how God runs his world. And what God is trying to say to Job is, listen, I started with the foundation. This is kind of like a stair step number one. If I had organization and intricate design with the foundation of the world, surely from there on up, I don't just let things run out of control. I've got things measured and lined out. I'm a God of order and organization. Job, you said some things about the way I run my creation that just aren't right. I made the world very good, Genesis 131. In fact, whenever the Old Testament mentions God's creation, you might write Psalm 104 out near this section of Job. It's always trying to impress upon people the majesty of God and his goodness. We use creation as design designer, and there's nothing wrong with that. We live in a world where people want to ignore God's existence, and so we say, hey, look at creation, and God created everything. There's design. Ancient Near Eastern people didn't have to be convinced that God exists, but they did have to be convinced that he was awesome. And so the creation is often brought up to say, look at what kind of God we serve. God does that here with Job. Another implication of these questions is what? Why would God mention the foundation of the world and the measuring line? What is he saying to Job? 
And he says in verse 7, the morning stars sang together. What is that all about? What is he saying about his creation? Harmony. Harmony is good. Yeah, Kevin's going to get all the points, guys. <laughs> He's right, though. It has harmony. It is good. Go back to Job chapter 3 and verse 9. Job says some things about creation that just weren't right. He called it darkness and said it should have never been there. Job 3 and verse 9 about creation. He said, let the stars of his dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. None of the eyelids of the morning. But when God showed up in 38.7, he says, the morning stars sang at my creation, Job. Job, beings higher than you saw my creation and praised it. How dare you curse it? He's saying creation's good. It's awesome. It's actually very good, Job. Your circumstances have dimmed your view of reality. You don't really appreciate things as they are. Job viewed the world as a dark and terrible place, but God says, you weren't there when I made the light to shine and smiled on it, were you? Rhetorical questions and wisdom literature like Job are meant to introduce people to what they already know. I'm going to give you one. You know this one. Proverbs 6, 27 and 28. The father says to his son, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? What's the answer? No. Why does the father say that to his son in Proverbs? <coughs> don't walk on fire. You don't want to get burned up. He's not mad at his son. He's just saying, hey, you might want to think through some things. The rhetorical questions God poses to Job are meant to invite him in. You probably have done this with your children or your mom or dad probably did this to you. This happens sometimes in families. I'm kind of preparing because it's probably going to happen to me. Right? Kid doesn't get what they want from mom or dad. They throw a tantrum. I hate you. You don't care about me. You don't love me. You won't give me this car. You won't give me what I want. And mom or dad says, listen, we worked three jobs to pay for everything. Where were you when I stayed up all night and took care of you? Where were you when I made all of these sacrifices and forewent my own needs and my own things so that you could have the things you wanted? Who took you to all these doctor's appointments and did all these things? Now question, when you do that as a parent or your parents did it to you, what was the point? It was twofold. One is to kind of put the child back in their place and let them know, you don't know how much I care about you. It can't be expressed. But on the other hand, it's to remind them of what they already know. Don't they know the answers to those questions? Who provided all those things? You did. And like a father with his children, God says to Job, come on, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know these. You know better than this, Job. You said some things about me. Just because you didn't get what you want, the way you want it, don't misrepresent me. I've been good to you. Okay. <clears throat> God talks about controlling the raging sea, Job 38, 8 through 11. I wish we had more time to talk about that. But let me just say, in the Bible, the sea is a big problem for people. Ancient Near Eastern people, and you can imagine why this would be the case for them. The only thing they knew about the sea was from going swimming. And it was bottomless, and it was terrible. Job 38, 8 through 11, God says, I control the raging sea. People in the ancient Near Eastern world wouldn't have been able to appreciate that. They were afraid of the sea. That's why whenever Jesus comes on the scene and he hushes the sea, the disciples say, oh, this must be God. Now, Jesus did a lot of miracles, but when he hushed the sea, they said, oh, you're God. Think about all the times in the Bible where God showed his control over the raging waters. Noah in the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. Jonah in the fish. Jesus walks on water, hushes the sea. The sea is at the beginning of creation, Genesis 1 and verse 2. God's not ma mastered by the sea. Ancient Near Eastern myths about creation have God being kind of in this chaotic thing, and what's he going to do? Genesis 1 and 2 says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. This would have meant a lot to Job, as God is saying, I'm in control of your greatest fear. And that's why when God says about the Leviathan, I slay the flying serpent, the Leviathan that rises up out of the sea. Job says, oh, if you can do that, I repent in dust and ashes, because you can take care of my problems. All right. <clears throat> 
he goes on to talk about the sunrise, Job 38, 12 through 15. Remember what Job says. Go to Job 9 and verse 24. I'm asking you to remember what Job says. You're like, I don't know this. Stuff that I mean, that was 10 weeks ago. All right. Job 9 and verse 24. Remember what Job says here about God and the wicked. The earth is given into the hands of who? The wicked. He covers their faces of it, of its judges. If it is not he, who is it then? But God actually says when he talks to Job about it in Job 38, 12 through 15, God, God says, Job, I actually caused the sun to rise to expose wicked people. So they don't have all night to do their dirt. Look at verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken up. Job said, God, you let the wicked do whatever they want. Job, God says, Job, listen, I caused the sun to rise to expose wicked people. Can you do that, Job? What's Job's answer? No. Okay. All right, let's go to the second part of the speech. We've got 10 minutes, I think. Or 15 if y'all are giving me the time. Okay. All right, God's questions continue. Job 38 and verse 39 into chapter 40 and verse 2. God continues to question Job, but now his focus changes. So if you're in chapter 38 and verse 39, all the way through chapter 40 and verse 2, God changes this. Uh, he talks about two things. God talks about animals in chapter 38 and on into chapter 39. He talks about things that are inanimate, and then he talks about animals. The animals that God mentions, he doesn't choose them at random. He chooses animals with either one or two characteristics. Number one, either they're animals that Job would know nothing about and who Job doesn't care about, and God says, yeah, you've never seen one of those, but I care about those too. Or he says something about animals that would have been ferocious and that Job would have been afraid of, and he says, I'm not afraid of him, Job. He does what I tell him to do. I control him. God's care extends to animals that terrify Job and to those incomprehensible. All right, go to Job 38. Notice 39 through 41. God gets food for the lion, and he provides prey for the ravens. Job 39, 1 through 4 says, Mountain goats don't escape his notice. Job 39, 5 through 12 the wild donkey and the wild ox answer to God and not to Job. The ostrich, now this one's pretty cool, Job 39, 19 through 25. He says the ostrich flaps flamboyantly and doesn't even make the wisest decisions about her eggs. He says they leave the eggs out there and somebody could take her young and destroy them. But God made her this way, he says in verse 17, and she survives still. God controls the war horse, 39, 19 through 25, and the hawk soars by God's understanding, <coughs> Job 39, 26 through 30. God says, Job, I've got it all covered. Look at chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. This is where God ends the first speech. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And so God calls out Job, and really anyone at this point who can answer any of the things he said, or pose a response that will put them in God's place or God in theirs. God says, I've got this, Job. Five quick things about this section, then we'll go briefly to Job's response and quick. Job's response is just verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Five quick things about what God has said thus far. Number one, God's universe is more vast and beautiful and complex than Job or we give it credit for. God has not slopped things together. He styled them together. See, Genesis 1 says God created the world, but Job's, the speeches of God in Job says God's got style. God's got aesthetics, and he puts intricate beauty into what he does. Rather than hit Job with facts, he always Job with beauty. Walter Brueggemann wrote a book called All to Heaven, and he talks about this idea that what God uses to draw us in, he doesn't bless Job with facts. He wows Job with beauty. He awes him in. He says, Job, 
Look at who I am. Number two, there is goodness in God's world and how he runs it, even in the midst of evil and suffering. In these speeches, God does not deny that there's evil and suffering and that some things are out of control. But when God does yield that point, he says, but I've got it under control. There are people that think the world's just out of control. And sometimes we even say this. Well, the world's out of control, but in the end, God's going to right every wrong. That's true. But the world's still not out of control. I mean, even the evil is on the leash that God put it on. We say that about the Satan in Job chapter 1, and that's right. But that's true about every evil. And I know that's hard to stomach and hard to take. What do you mean he has a leash on the evil? Every murder, it doesn't escape his eye. Every mistreatment, he really is in total control. And he'll say when time's up for those things. Number three, the world has fallen, but even in his fallen state, God is in control of it and keeps things restrained from going totally haywire. Number four, God expects us to draw certain conclusions about him from observing creation. God wants you to go outside today and look at the sun and not just say, well, God exists. He wants you and me to look at creation and then say, what kind of God exists? The heavens declare the what of God, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the Lord. See, David didn't say the heavens tell you God's there. They tell you God's glorious. They say, hey, when you look at all the intricate design, you don't know everything. You need divine revelation. But the heavens tell you what kind of God you're dealing with. When you see the stars and the sun and the moon, it's not just you see the leaves change colors. That's telling you something about the mind behind it, and it's meant to draw us into his glory. That's what God does with Job. He says, yeah, I created everything, but based on what I've done, you know how I operate, Job. You know how I run the world. And here's the fifth thing. Our limited knowledge must keep us from drawing conclusions about God and what he should do and could do. Because if there's at least one thing you don't know, that might be the one thing that God knows that explains your circumstances. And so if you can say about your life in the midst of whatever suffering you're in, I don't know everything, but what if the one thing you don't know is the one thing God knows that will one day make it all right? All right. We got like two seconds. <clears throat> Y'all get that five minutes or what? <laughs> Job 43-5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm a small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will receive no further. All right. Job responds to God, and um, he doesn't really say much. He says he's small in comparison with God's greatness. He puts his hand over his mouth. This is probably because he was in awe and to keep anything else from coming out. This hand over the mouth, it appears again. Proverbs 30, verse 22 Micah 7, 16. It's when a person knows they messed up and they don't want to respond. And then he says, I won't say anything else, but he will. His second response is more awesome than this one because of what God's going to tell him in the next speech. Job is speechless for the first time in the book, but God is not done speaking to him. All right, I just want to end with these takeaways from the speech and what we learned about God from this first round. Sorry we had to go so fast. Preachers went long and let's play. Whoever else you want. All right. God will not remain silent forever. That's takeaway number one. All false accusations and misunderstandings about God will be answered one day. Number two, we should be careful with our careless words. Jesus says every careless word that men will speak is running ahead of us, and it will meet us at the finish line of life, at the judgment, Matthew 12, 36, and 37. See ourselves in relation to God correctly. See God wants to improve our understanding of things through questions and contemplation. God wants us to be thinkers. Be impressed with God's beauty, and when in doubt, let it pull you back into the beautiful God who made it all. I just want to give you one last thing, and this will probably be it for the day, I guess. When C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote a book called Grief Observed. And he was mad at God because his wife died, as you could imagine. And he says this about God. Is it irrational to believe in a bad God? Anyway, in a God so bad at all, he called God a cosmic sadist, the spiteful imbecile. He was angry with God. 
And then one day he did this. He talked to a friend of his who told him about how he would go out and capture animals and torture them and put them through terrible things. And he reflected on this and he said, you know what, is it right to believe, is it rational to believe in a bad God? And here's what he says. Now being like that, like that man that tortures animals, however magnified, he couldn't invent or create or govern anything. He would set traps and try to bait them. But he would have never thought of baits like love or laughter or daffodils or a frosty sunset. He make a universe? He couldn't make a joke or a vow or an apology or a friend. He says, listen, if God makes beautiful things, it's irrational to believe in a bad God. Surely he's awesome. And Lewis changed his tune. And in Job's greatest hour of suffering, he realized it's irrational to believe in a bad God. Either he's good or he doesn't exist. He exists. And so he's good. Thanks for a good five. Appreciate you.